Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Alert! Alert! This is not a drill. The resistance is rising. We are in great peril. We must stop the advances before it's too late. We need to phage it out. This week, we're going to look at the crisis that is antibiotic resistance. We'll find out how dangerous it can be by talking with someone who almost died from an infection. We'll also hear from a researcher who is using an unlikely method to help people recover from these resistant bacteria. Viruses. And in our SAS class, we're going to learn how these small killers might be able to help keep our meat safe. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Techo, and I'm going to show you how we can fight the rise of antibiotic resistance and forge a path to victory with viruses. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. We've all been diagnosed with an infection. We've gone to see the doctor, and many times we've left the office with a prescription for antibiotics. We go to the drugstore to pick it up, head home, and take the pills every four or six hours as directed. We believe everything is going to be all right. We expect to get better. We want to get our lives back to normal as soon as possible and put this little health setback behind us. After all, an infection is just a part of life, right? That was me in 1996. But something happened that scared me to my core. The antibiotic didn't seem to be working. I had been diagnosed with pneumonia, and I knew it could get serious. The coughing was getting worse. My breathing was being affected. My energy levels were depleting. If this went on for much longer, I knew I would have to go to the hospital. Even as this was happening, and I knew the situation was getting more and more dire, the scientist in me wanted to give it more time. Wait a few more days and finish the course. I did. Still, nothing. If anything, I was getting worse. I went back to the doctor and she told me what I had feared. It was an antibiotic-resistant infection. As a microbiologist, I should not have been surprised. I had read the scientific papers. I knew resistance was on the rise. I should have been prepared for this news, yet I was bewildered. This was something that happened to other people, not me. And now I was facing a real dilemma, and my life was on the line. Antibiotics were approved for use in the United States in 1945, and, as expected, began to save lives. Within a few years, these drugs were being used in several countries to save people from infections that would normally be considered a death sentence. It was the beginning of a new age for humanity. Microbial enemies could no longer destroy us. We were going to win the battle against bacteria. Almost everyone agreed, except perhaps for one naysayer. He was a researcher in the United States who published a rather disturbing article in 1945. 
His name was Dr. Milislav Demirech, and he suggested some bacteria could be resistant. His paper ended with these rather prophetic words. Degree of resistance can be increased by exposure to higher concentrations of antibiotics. In other words, if you use more, you're going to end up with greater resistance. We should have listened. We should have heeded his warning. We should have started a plan to deal with resistance back then. Our hubris and belief in our wonder drugs stopped us. And we didn't. Instead, we went on as if that paper had never been written. The use of antibiotics spread, and so did the rise of resistance. At least in the scientific literature, and eventually in my lungs. It wasn't until 2014, almost 70 years after Demerich made his discovery, that the World Health Organization finally declared antibiotic resistance a crisis. And by then, by many accounts, it was far too late. Now, back to my lungs, which still had an antibiotic-resistant bacterium. I was worried, but I also knew I had a chance. I received the second prescription and gave it a shot. I ended up being allergic to it and was worried that I might have made everything worse. I even honestly considered checking into the hospital I was that desperate. And yet despite the hives and the greater toll on my immune system, the new antibiotics worked. It took some time, but eventually I was able to breathe normally again. My lungs cleared, my body healed. I was returned to normal within a month. I was lucky. Others are not. They may be unable to find an antibiotic that works. They have what is known as a multi-drug resistant infection. The bacteria can fight numerous, if not all, attempts to destroy it with antibiotics. Sometimes there are even pan-drug resistant infections in which all antibiotic treatments are futile. When that happens, the outlook is very grim and could lead to not only a long fight, but sometimes a losing battle ending in death. My first guest went through this ordeal and barely came out alive. His name is Dr. Tom Patterson, and he is a professor of psychiatry at the University of California, San Diego. Unlike so many other stories of antibiotic resistance, his made headlines back in 2017. It's now the subject of the new book, The Perfect Predator. In this story, he shares his ordeal and his journey to the brink of death and back. You went through all the antibiotic options with no success. At what point in this journey did it seem like you might not be able to recover? You know, we were on vacation in Egypt. I was perfectly fine. I was crawling down into the bowels of pyramids and wandering through the desert with a guide showing us all of the sights. And we were the night before we were going to go into the Valley of the Kings at Luxor. And all of a sudden I got sick out of the blue. And there, one was, one thing was that I, you know, you're in a place where there isn't a lot of uh, really modern amenities in terms of medical care. And uh, when I got sick, initially you thought, oh gosh, you got just uh, plain old food poisoning and everything will be fine in the morning. Doctor came to the 
to the uh, ship we were on and gave me some antibiotics and some some fluids and said everything will be right as rain tomorrow. And then I just got worse and worse and I was just miserable. I mean, absolutely miserable. And then they took me to a clinic and that in itself is a really scary situation because there was not a lot of English spoken. In particular, the nurses didn't and they were dressed in a traditional uh clothing and so I couldn't really see their faces they couldn't uh, answer any questions uh, the doctor himself that ran the clinic did but he wasn't there all the time so if I needed a bedpan I was in trouble because I couldn't get it at that point I still thought ah, oh, you're gonna get well this is just gonna pass all's gonna be fine but I just seemed to get worse and worse and worse and actually started to have some some problems with delusions i thought that uh i thought that they were trying to kill me and that they were blowing hookah smoke into my oxygen mask i was getting crazy and that's partly because i was uh i was didn't have a lot of sleep by that time a couple of days lack of sleep but also i had a lot of toxins in my blood and that was starting to build up and i was getting more and more afraid and so they uh loaded me on a, a small Learjet and took me to Germany. And that was a pretty scary experience right there. It's uh, it's not like you see in the movies where you're in a nice, big, luxurious plane and, and all you're crammed up into the, uh, the luggage rack, it, literally. And they gave me some sedation to make me relax more and and they had two german doctors on board who did speak english and then i was in a hospital that was incredibly modern a real contrast to what i had been like uh, in the clinic there in luxor but at this point i was getting more and more ill and actually it was at this point that they discovered that i actually had a superbug I don't want to give away too much from the book because it is so well captured in there. But you do talk about your recovery at the end. As you say, it's not like the movies. What was this part of your journey like? The moment, I guess, that you you could say my recovery began, I was in the hospital still. And at, at that point, I had been in a bed for... About six months in total, I had been in the hospital for nine months or was in the hospital for nine months. But while I was in the hospital, they started to do physical therapy on me. At the worst point, I was on a ventilator, meaning the machine is helping you breathe, and that means you're not able to speak. And because of that, your vocal cords, you know, are, you don't get to use them. You haven't swallowed anything. I'm fed through a tube. So the first thing that happens is you have to learn to literally swallow again. A physical therapist comes in and and you have to go through a process where first you're given an ice chip, one ice chip in a day, and you swallow that. And if you can do that successfully, and they, they go through this process of holding your throat and making sure that you're swallowing properly so you don't choke yourself and then 
from there, you start to speak again, and you have a speech, speech therapist come in, and you have a physical therapist teaching you to stand, and you have a machine hoisting you up so that you can stand. And then you take a couple of steps, and you're so exhausted you can't even imagine what it's like to have no strength whatsoever. You're essentially a giant baby learning to walk, to talk, to eat. And so you you take two steps, literally, you go back to bed, you sleep. You take four steps the next day, you go back to bed and you sleep. The rule of thumb is it's going to take you five times as long as you were in the hospital to recover. You know, I'm well on my way to recovery, but even today, I'm still working on strength and getting back to what I hope will be as normal as I'll ever be again. We've heard that antibiotic resistance is a crisis. Even so, few seem to appreciate what that means. I really hope your story in this book is going to help people understand the impact of resistant infections. If you have a message for those out there regarding the rise of resistance, what would you say? It's time for the the world to wake up, to not abuse what we have left, and to reduce the use, unnecessary use and misuse of antibiotics. If you are a bacterium, you may not have great difficulty being able to resist against a single chemical, such as an antibiotic, or numerous chemicals put together, like a cocktail. But what if the attacker is a virus, better known as a bacteriophage? It's a complex entity that has evolved to enter you, multiply inside you, and eventually kill you. You may be able to put up a fight, you may even survive, but usually it's a futile effort. Your fate has been sealed. From an ecological perspective, this is a great way to achieve balance. Bacteria feed on the environment to multiply, while viruses of bacteria feed on those bacteria to keep their numbers in check. No matter where you look on Earth, if you happen to find bacteria, you'll most likely find these viruses. In some places like the oceans and the soil, viruses outnumber bacteria by as much as 10 to 1. There are trillions of phages on and inside us, but they do not prey on the bacteria that cause infections simply because they're not present. When an infection strikes, the race between the need of the bacterium for your cells and the cravings of the virus for the bacteria no longer applies, and the odds are no longer in your favor. You essentially are a tribute in a Hunger Games in which your chances for survival are slim. The use of viruses to improve our fight against bacterial infections isn't a new idea. It was first conceived back in the 1920s and gained some traction in the 30s. The researcher leading this movement, Dr. Felix Deherel, wrote the following back in 1936. It must be sufficient to administer to a patient a culture of selected hypervirulent phage to provoke suddenly in the patient the natural phenomenon of recovery. Quite simply, reduce the number of bacteria causing harm with bacteriophages and your body will do the rest. Although making ecological and medical sense, phages never took off. Thankfully, in small sectors of the research community, investigators kept working to show viruses could be the weapons needed to ensure patients became victors rather than another statistic. 
At the dawn of the new millennium, with resistance raging on, phage therapy began its resurgence and slowly regrew favor in the scientific community. And as for Tom, much like PETA in those Hunger Games, there was a heroine to save him. Her name isn't Katniss, however. It's Stephanie. Dr. Stephanie Strathy is a star in the infectious disease world with over 600 publications. She has been involved in HIV research in Canada and the U.S., most recently at the University of California, San Diego. When Tom came down with the infection, she turned her arrows to that bacterial target and found a way to save him using those phages. She also opened up a path to start a second rebellion and give us another shot at ensuring bacterial infections do not rule over us. She is the other author of the book, The Perfect Predator, and there's good reason for it. Because much like Katniss and Peta, Stephanie and Tom are married. As an epidemiologist, the idea of a resistant bacterial infection probably wasn't a surprise. But when did you realize that you had to find a different route to save Tom? In other words, all of your antibiotic options were gone. When Tom was in the intensive care unit, he was slipping away minute by minute, day by day. It was hard to actually see if he was going to pull through or not. And I was actually sitting there when he was sleeping one day, or maybe he was in a slight coma. And um, I was on a conference call with some of my colleagues trying to get my mind off of, you know, the reality in front of me. And one of the people at the, on the conference call was a former university chancellor and surgeon, and he asked how Tom was doing during a coffee break, and I told him what was happening, and, and uh, then I said, oh, I have to go because I see the doctors are coming to do rounds, and he thought I'd hung up, and he turned to his colleague beside him, and he said, has anybody told Steph that her husband is going to die? Whoa. And I held the phone in my arms like a baby cradling it and I realized nobody has. I, I have to do something or I'm going to lose them. What made you think about going to phages for Tom? Well, after I realized that we were going to lose Tom unless something drastic happened and I approached our colleagues who are doctors working, you know, at the University of California, San Diego. And I said, is it true? Is he dying? And they said, you know, we have run out of antibiotic options. There's nothing left. And, you know, yeah, we think we're going to lose him. So I asked Tom, actually, if he wanted to live. I didn't know if he could hear me. He was in a coma, but this one day his eyebrows were twitching and I asked him if he, you know, wanted to fight or if he wanted to give up. And I said, if you want to fight, you know, squeeze my hand and I'll leave no stone unturned. And I waited and he squeezed my hand. And so I was really excited. I, you know, fist pumped in the air. But then I realized, oh, man, you know, like I'm not a medical doctor. How am I going to, you know, solve this problem? But I did what anybody would do. I went home and I Googled it. I put in words into uh, a search engine, multi-drug resistant bacterial infections and Acinetobacter baumannii, the superbug that was killing him, and alternative treatments, and up popped a paper that included phage therapy. And I went, wow, phage. I know what those are. I studied phage when I was a University of Toronto student back in the 1980s. Um, I just didn't know that phages had been used to treat bacterial infections. I knew that they were viruses that preyed on bacteria. And I thought, hmm, 
So I did a little bit more homework, and I realized that they had been used extensively in the former Soviet Union for the last several decades, but clinical trials were lacking to show that they were worked, and so they were considered experimental treatment in North America and Western Europe. So I turned to the infectious disease doctors, and I said, what do you think about phage therapy to cure Tom? And they said, look, you know, if you can find some phages that can match his bacteria, we'll contact the FDA and see if we can get permission for compassionate use therapy to just try to save him. So that's when the phage hunt began. Where did you find the right phages to help him? Yeah, well, that was the second biggest problem because it was harder than finding a needle in a haystack. There's 10 to the power of 31 phages on the planet. And when you think about it, how are you going to find phages that are going to match a specific infection? I mean, they're almost like a lock and key. They're very specific. So I contacted uh, researchers that were total strangers. Again, I went back to the Internet and I Googled Acinetobacter pulmonii and phage. And I restricted my search to the U.S. because I thought that we didn't have much time left. And I found a handful of researchers, and I wrote every one. And Dr. Rai Young from Texas A&M University wrote back and said, you know, if you have his bacterial isolate and you can send it to me, I'll look through our environmental samples to see if we have any that are matched. And at that point, I had done a little bit of homework, and I realized that if bacteria are the prey for these phages, which are the predator, then you're going to find phages wherever you find a lot of bacteria. So the best place to find them is actually in places like sewage and barnyard dumps and, you know, garbage pits and things like that. So that's actually what they did. Several of the phages that match Tom's bacteria were sourced directly from sewage treatment facility plants. So I like to tell them that he's full of, well, you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Did you ever get that National Enquirer headline you were hoping for? No, but, you know, I, I, I think it could happen one day. For those of you who are wondering, it's in the book. You, you're going to love it. We know that you managed to use phages to help Tom get over the infection. Did you ever encounter any setbacks as you were getting prepared to treat him? There were a number of hurdles. First was Tom's own very precarious situation. He had seven cases of septic shock, and at any moment we could be losing him. So we didn't know if we were going to reach him in time. We ultimately had two different teams, the Texas A&M team and a team at the Navy who agreed to help us, and they found two phage cocktails, so two combinations of, of phages that matched his bacterial isolate, and they were preparing those to send to us, but at that point, we realized that because Tom's entire body was fully colonized with this superbug, that we would have to treat him intravenously with the phage, as opposed to just like sprinkling it on his skin. And that meant that we had to get this endotoxin, as it's called, below the, uh, a certain limit that the FDA recommended so that we could be sure, or at least as sure as we could be, that the phage itself wouldn't kill him. So that was actually a very big challenge, and we had to call on colleagues even closer to home. San Diego State University turned out to have a team that was equipped to do this phage purification process that got the phage endotoxin below the level that we needed, and then we were ready to go. But by that time, Tom had entered multi-stage organ failure. So his lungs had already been failing, his heart had already been failing, and now his kidneys were failing. 
So it was believed that he was only within hours of, of dying if we hadn't begun the phage therapy. Phage therapy has been making a resurgence as of late, thanks in part to your efforts. How do you feel it compares to antibiotics in terms of an effective treatment for bacterial infections? Well, I think phages are a very promising alternative to antibiotics, and they might even be an adjunct to antibiotics in some cases. Some of the advantages of them are that they're ubiquitous, so they can be found you know, readily, and that they match very specifically to certain bacteria and they don't kill the friendly bacteria in our microbiome like antibiotics kind of have this scorched earth approach where they kill all the friendly bacteria that makes it very difficult for people to recover. And antibiotics also have side effects. They have damage to human tissues and Tom does have side effects due to some of the very heavy antibiotics that he was on, which are very toxic. And the phages, at least in the experience that we've had to date treating several patients, haven't had any adverse effects. Once they kill the bacteria, they are excreted from the body by the liver and the spleen. So it's actually a very beautiful kind of nature's own alternative to antibiotics. You and Tom have written this book, The Perfect Predator. And for those interested, it comes out today and I truly recommend it. Having gone through this ordeal, have you changed your perspective on our relationship with the microbial world? And have you become a phage evangelist? Well, yes, I think both Tom and I are totally transformed by this experience. We both used to see viruses as the enemy. I think most people do. We hear of viruses like Ebola and SARS and HIV. In fact, Tom and I are HIV researchers, so it was kind of a surprise to us that the enemy of my enemy was my friend, and we turned viruses into a perfect predator to attack bacteria. And as an epidemiologist, I've become a lot more aware of the global superbug crisis and how badly off we really are because we don't even have a full sense of the picture. For example, in the United States, it was estimated recently that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention had underestimated the number of people dying from superbug infections by at least sevenfold. Their number was maybe 23,000 people had died in the year 2010 from superbugs. Well, the lower end of the estimate that was just provided recently was 153,000. So you can just tell that we don't have a good handle on, on the scope of the problem. And in Canada, there are no estimates officially of the number of people dying from superbugs each year. So in order to get a handle on this problem, we need to be counting. We need to have better detection and reporting. We need to be able to diagnose superbugs a lot faster so that we can differentiate between a viral and a bacterial infection. There's a long way to go, but Based on our experience to date, we can see that phage therapy warrants evaluation in rigorous clinical trials. So in the meantime, I'm uh, working to help people who have superbug infections receive phage therapy on a compassionate basis. So if you have a superbug infection that is no longer responding to antibiotics, our center, which is the first dedicated phage therapy center in North America called the Center for Phage Applications and Therapeutics, is available free to help people and their doctors obtain phage therapy and we're learning from each and every case it's SAS class time and today we're going to look at how phages may be able to help keep our meat free of bacterial infections we know that raw and undercooked meat can lead to infection by a number of different bacteria 
Who hasn't heard of salmonella or E. coli? They lurk in our meat, and if we don't kill them with cooking, we may end up with diarrhea, vomiting, cramps, and in some cases, kidney failure. Some foodborne pathogens can even kill us. That's where our guest teacher comes into the picture. His name is Dr. Lawrence Goodridge, and he is working with viruses to attack and kill the pathogens that lurk in our meat supply. He holds the Leung Family Professorship in Food Safety at the University of Guelph. How troubling is the risk of a bacterial infection from undercooked or raw meat? Most of the foodborne pathogens that cause illness in humans come from animals. They're called zoonotic pathogens, which means they can be transmitted from animals to humans and vice versa. And of course, uh, with respect to foods of animal origin, they are vehicles for these pathogens. So if, if we don't cook our, our meat properly, then we're at, at risk of becoming sick. Ongoing outbreaks right now in Canada related to salmonella contamination of poultry products, for example, are a prime example of that. And in the past, we've seen outbreaks in beef and pork. They are of concern. Take us through the process of using phages to help protect our meat supply. Well, phages could be used in several ways. First, on the live animal, there are commercial phage products that are designed, for example, to reduce the presence of E. coli 0157 on the hides of, of live beef cattle. They thought there being that if one can reduce the amount of E. coli that might be present because of manure that's present on the hide, then during the harvest process when the hide is removed from the carcass, that will decrease the amount of E. coli that potentially could get onto the meat and contaminate the meat. Other potential approaches are the use of phages to reduce the presence of E. coli and other pathogens in the, in the cattle gastrointestinal tract. That is the main source of the bacteria that get into the manure. So if you can reduce that, then in theory you have less in the manure and less to get onto the hive. On top of that, once meat is produced, uh, phages can be applied directly to the meat to reduce any potential contamination that might be present. We know about antibiotic resistance. It's a huge problem. Could the bacteria in the meat develop resistance to the phages, making this process of food safety less effective? Yes, absolutely. So just as bacteria develop resistance to antibiotics, they will and, and do develop resistance to bacteriophages. So one main solution to that is to use mixtures or cocktails of, of bacteriophages in a single product. And, and so the idea is that the, uh, in order for bacterium to become resistant, they would have to become resistant to all of those phages. And if one were to rationally design that cocktail such that there were different phages that use different bacterial receptors on the cell surface, then in theory, the bacterium would have to mutate all of those different receptors simultaneously. And that's a very difficult thing to, to do. So that's why most commercial phage products have cocktails. We have been conducting some research recently that shows that when a, a bacterium becomes resistant to a phage, it tends to make that bacterium more sensitive to other antimicrobials. One of the, the areas that we're interested in is combining phages with other lower levels of antimicrobials because we've, we've seen that that leads, tends to reduce the amount of bacterial resistance that develops to the phages. Is the use of phages to help protect wildlife? Well, phages in, in, in general can be used in any animal or human. The rationale is the same as in, as in food-producing animals. Now, you mentioned antibiotic resistance uh, bacteria before. So we have done some research to show that wild animals, for example, tend to be a reservoir 
for antibiotic resistant bacteria. And if the wild animals live in close proximity to beef cattle feedlots, for example, they tend to visit those feedlots because it's an easy source of food for them, the animal feed. And while they're there, they can transfer the antibiotic resistant bacteria back to the cattle. So this is important because even if we develop ways to reduce the amount of antibiotics used in food animal production, it may not be enough to eliminate antibiotic resistance because wild animals still harbor them. So one thing that can be done there is to use phages to reduce the presence of antibiotic resistance bacteria in wildlife. Do you think that some of the source of antimicrobial resistant bacteria might be the wild animals as opposed to just simply our livestock? Absolutely. It's important to understand that antibiotic resistance is a natural phenomenon. Bacteria naturally in the soil naturally produce antibiotics and, and other bacteria and other microorganisms naturally produce antibiotics. Um, and, and, and this is seen regularly in the soil. Uh, you know, there have been many studies where, where microbiologists have shown they can isolate antibiotic-resistant bacteria from places on the earth, such as the Arctic uh, regions, for example, where there have never been any uh, livestock. I want to turn to public acceptance. We've seen serious backlash against other attempts to improve upon food safety. People don't want GMOs. They're scared of radiation. How do you think the public will react to using viruses to kill pathogenic bacteria in meat? Approximately about 12 years ago, when bacteriophages were first regulated by the FDA for use as a food-grade antimicrobial, there was quite a bit of backlash. The public was not educated as to, as to what bacteriophages were. And, and so once they found that there were viruses, then there was a lot of hysteria and concern that government agencies were allowing viruses to be sprayed into our food and, and so on and so forth. I think the companies that have commercialized such products since that time have done a much better job of educating the public as to what bacteriophages are. They specifically infect bacteria. They cannot infect humans. They cannot harm humans. We have them on our skin in, in high levels. We have them in our gastrointestinal tract in high levels. If you lick your lips, you, you probably lick many bacteriophages. They're the most prevalent organism on this, on this planet, numbering 10 to the 31 particles, which, are, which is more than all other life forms combined. So, so they're everywhere. They're natural. And it's important um, that that message is conveyed to the public. Um, and, and I think that message has been getting through. And we see that antibiotic resistance is increasing, and we need other approaches to controlling pathogens. A lot of research in terms of controlling human diseases now turns to bacteriophages, and they are gaining more acceptance and more use. And that, in turn, I think, allow for even more acceptance of their use in food. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope you have enjoyed the show so much. You know where I'm going. Let's make it go viral. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support has been overwhelming, and we encourage you to contact us. For any questions or comments on the show, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at JATetro. If the ideas are longer than 280 characters, including suggestions for the show, you can email me at thegermguy at gmail.com. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us because it helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. 
We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen in at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer and sound design. And final production is done by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. May the odds always be in your favor. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. 